Before Mazur invented himself as Mazur, he was Samson Mazur, M-A-Z-E-R. And before he was Samson Mazur, he was Samson Mazur, M-A-S-U-R. A change of two letters that transformed him from a nice, ostensibly Jewish boy to a professional builder of worlds. And for most of his youth, he was Sam, S-A-M, on the Hall of Fame of his grandfather's Donkey Kong machine, but mainly Sam. Hello, and welcome to Best Seller, where we read and rate the latest book at the top of the New York Times hardcover fiction list. 20 minutes with us, and you'll know whether to read it or re-gift it. I'm Barbara. And I'm Brian. Today we're reviewing Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, which was on the list for a total of 48 weeks from July 24th, 2022 to September 17th, 2023. And, like last episode, we are recording this from a boat on the other side of the world, this time somewhere on the Java Sea. And I'm looking forward to getting a cup of Java once we dock, a, a strong one. Oh, so are you awake enough to do this episode or still jet lagging? Well, my body has no idea what time it is, <laughs> but I think my mind is ready to talk about this novel. Great! So, you said 48 weeks on the list from July 22 to September 23. That's more than a 48-week interval, if my seat-of-the-pants calendar math serves. Well, yes, there are gaps, including one rather long one. The book has had an interesting journey. Tell. Okay, so July 24th, 2022, it entered the list at number three, just below The Hotel Nantucket by Ellen Hildebrand and Rising Tiger by Brad Thor. Those were at one and two. It stayed on the list for eight weeks at that time, dropping steadily, as most books do, from three to five to seven to nine and so on, all the way down to 14 before it left the list on September 25th of 2022. So what happened to bring it back on the list? Well, it was off for 10 weeks, entirely off, but then it came back on at number 15 on December 4th, 2022, which started its long 2023 run. What happened is buzz. Hmm. Yeah, it got placed on a number of book critics' best of 2022 lists, including landing at the number one book of 2022, according to Amazon Book Editors. Wow. It also won the Goodreads Choice Award for Best Fiction of 2022. So this end-of-the-year critical attention brought it enough consideration to bring it back on the bestseller list, where it stayed for 40 more weeks. Oh, boy. Yeah, peaking at number two for four weeks in February and March of 2023, until it finally did leave the list on September 17th of this year. But during that whole time, it never made number one? No, it didn't. It just peaked at number two, but it certainly is one of the best-selling books of 2023. Right now, it looks to be the fourth biggest seller of the year, after Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver, and Fourth Wing by Rebecca Yaros. All of which we reviewed this year. Right. In addition to reviewing all the number one bestsellers of each week, we're also trying to review the top, at least the top 10 best-selling books of the whole year, whether or not they ever made number one. So it's definitely time for us to review the Zevin novel because it clearly is going to make the end of the year list. I say the Zevin novel because let's face it, tomorrow and tomorrow 
And Tomorrow is an unwieldy title, rather hard to say. Hard to know if you've put enough tomorrows in. Or too many. <laughs> and it's not easy to abbreviate either. I mean, what if I asked you, hey, did you finish Tomorrow yet? What would you think? <laughs> I don't know, that you just dropped some acid? <laughs> or think I have access to my own personal time machine? Yeah. Right. The title, by the way, is a phrase from a Shakespeare play, that famous soliloquy Macbeth delivers when he's being besieged by opposing forces and he learns of his wife's death. Oh, yeah, that tale told by an idiot speech. Yeah, here's the speech. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So the title is actually a full line of iambic pentameter. That's right. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Da 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 da. If I did that right, probably the only iambic pentameter title on the bestseller list this year. Rather bleak view of life in the passage. What does it have to do with the book's story? Well, I'm not sure, actually. Let's come back to that question after we summarize the story. But before that, what do we know about the author? Gabrielle Zevin grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, but was born in New York City on October 24, 1977. So she's 46 years old. Mm. Her mother is Korean and her father a Russian Jew, both of whom worked at IBM. Zevin studied American literature at Harvard, where she met her partner, Hans Canosa, the film director best known for the 2005 film Conversations with Other Women, for which Zevin wrote the screenplay. Mm -hmm. Canosa also directed the 2022 film The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, based on Zevin's 2014 international bestseller of the same title. The couple currently lives in Los Angeles. And since 2005, Zevin has published 10 novels, evenly split between five adult fiction and five fiction for young readers. Her first young adult novel, Elsewhere, was a critically acclaimed story about a 15-year-old girl who is hit by a taxi and killed, wakes up in a ship headed to the island Elsewhere, where all the dead people age backwards until they reach seven days old at which point they're reincarnated as a new baby on Earth. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Her most successful adult novel, until this one anyway, was the storied life of A.J. Fickery, about a bookstore owner whose wife dies and whose business is falling apart but gets to start his life over after a mysterious package appears. Hmm, I'm sensing an emerging theme here. There's a theme, and that probably helps us parse the title. Indeed. This new book, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and... Wait, one, two, then tomorrow <laughs> is 416 pages published by Knopf. It has a readership that's about three quarters female. The audiobook is 13 hours and 52 minutes read by Jennifer Kim, who adopts a kind of emotionless monotone, almost robotic, throughout the book. I'm not sure if that's her usual reading style or a deliberate artistic choice because, you know, the theme of the novel is video games. I'm not sure. What did you think of the voice acting? Yeah, so that was my take on it because so much of the content of the story surrounds playing or building or marketing video games. The dry voice sort of fits right in. Did you like it? I did not care for the voice. I found it 
very so dry that it was it was hard mm. to track what was going on. It was hard to understand the emotion of uh. the book. It took more work yeah. um, to get into the story with the voice that sort of floated without. Well, emotion. that's interesting. This may be one where it's actually easier to get into the emotion of it by reading by it reading it than directly. listening. I would which I would recommend doesn't happen always. Well, I want to bring up one other thing before we get into the story. We don't usually talk about the book covers, but they're always you know, striking and interesting to me. I always notice them, and we may start talking about them more. But in this case, I just want to ask, does anyone like this cover? <laughs> I'm really curious about that. For me, it's got to be the least appealing cover of all the, what, 180-some bestsellers this year. Wow. I'm guessing they were going for the look of a, maybe an unsophisticated video game from the 90s. That's fine. It's just it's not appealing. I take it that's your opinion. <laughs> I usually give my opinion when I'm when I'm pontificating. Yes. To give it its due, though, I think it fits the first video game they developed in the story. Right. Um, and That's it does, what I was thinking, probably. Yeah. And it does stand out from all the other book covers in the hardcover fiction section. So there's right. that. It stands out in its unattractiveness. <laughs> okay. Literally, it's like what? What is that over there? Okay, so let's summarize <laughs> the story. Yes. <laughs> The story begins in 1996, when Harvard undergraduate Sam Mazur spots his childhood friend Sadie Green in a Boston subway station. She's a computer science major at MIT just down the road. Sam had been hoping to run into her at some point because they were close childhood friends who parted on awkward terms years before. When he was 12, Sam had been in a terrible car accident that killed his mother and put him in the hospital for months, receiving one surgery after another on his crushed lower leg. Sadie, after having a fight with her sister Alice, who's in the same hospital receiving cancer treatments, runs into Sam in the hospital rec room, where, silent and depressed, he spends all his time playing video games alone. Sadie joins him in a game of Super Mario Brothers, and he begins to open up a little with her, the first person he's spoken to in months. Here's an audio clip of part of that first conversation. Sadie was nearing the end of the level. What's the secret to landing high on the flagpole? Hold down the run button as long as you can. Then crouch down and jump just before you're about to fall, the boy said. Sadie slash Mario landed on the top of the flagpole. Hey, it worked. I'm Sadie, by the way. Sam. Your turn. She returned the controller to him. What's wrong with you? She asked. I was in a car accident, Sam said. My foot is broken in 27 places. That's a lot of places, Sadie said. Are you exaggerating, or is that the number? It's the number. I'm very particular about numbers. Me too. But sometimes the number goes up slightly because they have to break other parts of it to reset it, Sam said. They might have to cut it off. I can't stand on it at all. I've already had three surgeries, and it's not even a foot. It's a flesh bag with bone chips in it. Sounds delicious, Sadie said. Sorry if that was gross. Your description made me think of potato chips. We skip a lot of meals since my sister got sick, and I don't think anyone would even notice if I starved to death. All I've had today is a pudding cup. You're weird, Sadie, Sam said with interest in his voice. I know, Sadie said. 
Sadie returns to visit Sam in the hospital many times over the next few months, but their friendship breaks up when Sam learns that, as much as she seemed to, and really did, enjoy his company, Sadie was also acquiring community service credit for her hospital visits Mm -hmm. with him. By the time he runs into her in Boston, though, he's ready to put aside his anger and sense of betrayal and resume the relationship. Sam and Sadie discover that they make a really good video game design team. And the book follows the story of their partnership over the next 15 years or so as they come of age, both personally and professionally, designing a series of hit video games, as well as some flops, founding a successful game production company, struggling through issues of creative difference and friction over who receives credit for their success. This is a real difficulty since, as a female in a male-dominated world, Sadie's role in the design process is often discounted. As they build their own complicated private lives and increasingly design games separately rather than as a team, their relationship withers, finally cratering in a long period where, though they're still business partners, they live in separate parts of the country and barely speak to each other. So are Sam and Sadie able to rekindle that early creative spark and get back to designing games together? Do they repair their friendship, maybe take it to the next level, become lovers, even marriage partners? Or do they decide that the way forward is not to move in or make babies or put yet another video game out on the market, but host a show together? Maybe a podcast? A podcast reviewing best-selling fiction? That would be crazy talk, but it it might help their relationship. Who knows? (laughs) For answers to these and other questions, read the book. As we did. So what did you think? The book was definitely original, and it was original enough that it held my attention. First of all, it's about a working relationship rather than a romance, so that's different. Sam and Sadie, how they work together and their friendship over the years. So I found that interesting. Uh, One of the questions in my mind was, are they ever going to become romantic? How is their game design teamwork going to go next? Uh, That kept my interest. The way that she structured the book as a whole, which is, here's the game they're working on now. Here's the game they're working on next. The whole book is is structured as a series of game designs. And that, that was actually kind of interesting because the games are different from each other and they evolved over time as the technology and the community of game playing changed. So I, I kept my interest pretty well and gave it a, a 2.5. What about you? So Grab and Grip was not a bad category for me. I would say middle of the pack in terms of the books that we reviewed. I was intrigued by the childhood meeting in the hospital. Mm -hmm. That seemed authentic to me, having logged about six months at Children's Hospital for my daughter's cancer. I can Ah. easily picture the kind of friendship that starts with two kids thrown into that situation. So I was pulled in along with their story, and I gave that a 2.5. Well, let's talk about flair. Did she got flair? That's really ungrammatical. (laughs) Does this author have flair? Yes or no? Yeah, to a certain extent. So there were some sentences that had some impact. For instance, I feel my bones crumbling and my flesh turning to liquid. That's okay. a graphic sentence. Um, I thought generally the style was clean and understandable and it flowed easily. There was an overarching structure too, which you may want to comment about. And I, I definitely have some ideas about that. But what did you think first? It looks like I liked her flair a little more than you did. I gave it a three and you gave it a two. She has verbal flair. It's not like the main thing you notice about the book, but there were some phrases I liked too, so let me share a couple of them. Here's a little section that was one of my favorite. Sadie liked the phrase, an abundance of caution. Mm -hmm. It reminded her of a murder of crows, a flock of seagulls, a pack of wolves. She imagined that caution was a creature of some kind. 
maybe a cross between a St. Bernard and an elephant, <laughs> a large, intelligent, friendly animal that could be counted on to defend the Green Sisters from threats, existential and otherwise. That's that's nice. I this like great. that. Yeah, I like that. Another example of her verbal flair is she's got this big conflict early on is that Sam discovers Sadie's there to get community credit, not just to be his friend. And that sort of breaks them up. And she writes him an apology note in the programming language basic. Mm-hmm. That was cute. And, and I remember from years ago, my little foray into computer programming enough that I could follow the example of her using the, the language basic to apologize. So the verbal flair is fine. Uh, there's also structural flair. She's got a section later in the book where one of the main characters is in a life and death situation, and she moves into the second person. You did this. You thought that. That was that actually worked for me. She goes on like a chapter or two in second person. There was another place where for an entire chapter, you're within a game. So those little decisions of architecture, I thought showed her flair. So I ended up giving this category a three. The overarching structure that I did like about this was the whole sort of theme of tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow. The, the idea that in a game, and this is very important throughout the book, in mm-hmm. a game, you get to start over. Mm-hmm. You get to, if you die, you get to come back. There were parts of that that did not work for me. I know you have some things to say about that too. But I, I think that the problem that I felt with this book was that it was always a circle and never mm. an arc. So in the end, you may die and come back again, but eventually you'll just be in the same spot. Is it? Are you saying that even the main relationship the book is about is more circular? Yes. Than- do you have anything else about Flair? I gave it a two. So beam me up. That's the world building part. This is the category where we pulled apart the most. I know that because I'm looking at our scores right now. Yeah. I gave it a 3.5. I gave it, it a two. Yes. So do you want to go first? Sure. I, I didn't like this world. As I was driving and listening to this, my face was scrunched up a lot of the time. I just didn't, I wasn't on board with what was happening. And Another I, objective way to measure these. Yeah. Put a camera on your face. How often is it scrunched? What kind of face am I making as I'm listening? <laughs> yeah. I didn't find myself wanting to go back and finish it. Or like, mm. I didn't want to be in the world. I The video game worlds were slightly interesting. I felt like they were a distraction from the main character's struggle to exist uh, without this honesty that I always wanted them to find and they never ever came through. And over and over they turned to this video game world for mm. connection, love, peace, contentment, but not to each other. And that was frustrating for me. I have to guess that the reason this book took off was because of the the, in, the intense involvement in the video game scene in this book. I'm not saying this is the only book that addresses that, but it, it certainly goes deeply into that. And I, I haven't read a book like that, and so it pulled me in. I was interested in that world. I also was frustrated about their relationship, which I'll talk about more in a minute. But the video game world itself was interesting to me. And, and to give her full credit, it's not just one snapshot. She's moving through what was it, fifteen years, and the, oh, the yeah. video games definitely evolve for sure during, and she captures that in the yeah. games that they're designing. I would agree. I also felt that each game that they worked on was interesting in its own right, conceptually interesting, and it made me wonder: Are these games more interesting to talk about than if somebody could actually play them? <laughs> One of the first games Sadie designed when she was still an undergrad was called Solution, which was inspired by her grandmother who had, what, survived the Holocaust? And the premise of the game, this is actually a quote from the book, 
If you asked questions and didn't keep mindlessly building widgets, because the game's in a, you're set in a widget factory, your score will be lower. So if you ask questions, your score goes down. But you would find out you were working in a factory that supplied machine parts to the Third Reich. So the game rewards you for not asking questions. And then at the end, there's this big reveal. Oh, I've become a mindless slave of the Third Reich. That was interesting. Right. If you win, you're a big loser. And then... <laughs> Yeah, and then the first game that they worked on commercially together was called Ishigo, A Child of the Sea. This is their breakthrough game. And here's how Sadie describes it. A child is washed out to sea. Once she said it, she knew she would have to do it. And the rest of the game is how the child gets back home. And she spends a lot of time describing this game and, and the attraction of it, the appeal of it seems to be the character only has childlike abilities. It was fascinating to think about. That part of the world drew me in is, is thinking about these video games. So that was it for me. That was the main reason I liked the world is, is the, the video game part, which you found frustrating and distracting from the relationship part, which is our next category. Exactly. New best friends. What did you think so for the, the characters? These were not my best friends. I, <laughs> They both were flawed in similar ways. This is not a romance mm -hmm. novel, um, but some of the tropes of the romance genre are that the characters aren't honest about themselves or their feelings, and so there's this big disconnect, and then they finally get together in the end. And in this mm -hmm. book, they also were not honest about their feelings, and they never really connected in any real way. They connected through the video game in the hospital when they were kids, and then after that sort of betrayal, they spent years of being disconnected. And so they both have this flaw of not being forthcoming and not being honest and not really connecting. And it just is maddening. And so Mark's, I found, was the only centered one. Mm. And he spoke the truth mm. somewhere in the middle of the book. Which character is Mark's? Mark's is Sam's friend and Sadie's friend. He become, Doesn't he become a producer in the video game he company? Does, he not does. a designer, but like... He helps them with the video, but he also gets very close to each of them. And he spoke this truth. And I felt like this was the center of the story for me when Mark said to Sam, it's harder for me to help you now. So you have to tell me what you need. And that is like a cry for sanity. You, We all in our relationships, we have to say what we need. We have to have that. If you're going to have an honest relationship, mm -hmm. they just never did. <laughs> Just in order to, to have that kind of realization, Sam and Sadie have to, one, identify what they need, two, communicate it to the people they love, which also requires them, three, to know that they love each other. And it's, it, it is, it's disappointing. I had the same reaction. I don't, honestly, I couldn't tell if they were in love or not. They're shut down most of the book, emotionally shut down with each other, with most of the people in their lives. And that makes it very hard for us as readers to know. All we see is dysfunction, lack of communication, and so on. And then they're supposed to have another chance. It's just going to be more of the same. Uh, interestingly, for a book that's about their working relationship, we don't actually see them working together very much. Most of the book, they're working separately. And when they are working together, we get very few details about what that's actually like. It's hard to root for their relationship when there's just too much that's not really known that we're guessing about what their feelings are. Uh, I want to also mention that there's an abusive relationship between Sadie and one of her teachers at MIT, whose name is Dove. It's abusive in the sense that they're involved for quite a few months before he bothers to tell her that he's married with child. He introduces 
S&M into the relationship to the point where she's showing up at work with visible bruises and people are worried about her. And there's actually a point where he handcuffs her to the bed. For 13 hours. Not as a sex game, but to literally to keep her. That, that's kidnapping. That's a that's an offense. Yeah, it's awful. That's a criminal offense. 13 hours? And my point about this relationship is not that I didn't want to read about it. It's it's that Sadie, again, she's so shut down, she barely has a reaction to this. She actually says at one point, she says, he was not a very good boyfriend. Or maybe she says, he was a bad boyfriend. <laughs> I think she said he's not a very good boyfriend. That's the strongest that she that she says to him. By the way, the author, Gabriel Zevin, was called out on this. And her response was, well, this was in the years before the Me Too movement. And like, that's tone deaf. The problem is not that there wasn't a legal or political response in the book. That's probably realistic. The problem is she doesn't have a response. She doesn't really react to this abusive, except almost like, meh, not a very good boyfriend. In the acknowledgments at the end of the book, Zevin says, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is a novel about work. It is equally about love. But I found it to be lacking in both. It didn't really show them working together, and it didn't really show them loving each other. Yeah. So I ended up giving this category 1.5, and you gave it... I gave it a 2. 2. Our last category, all the feels. This is it. Bring it all together. What kinds of emotional reactions did you have to the book? My my only emotional reaction to this book was a flat hopelessness. Oh, no. And I did not flat. enjoy it. I'm so sorry. What does flat hopelessness translate into as a score? 1.5. So I gave it a 2. So you and I are aligned on this. And I want to talk about something that I haven't brought up about this book To me, this is a philosophy lecture Mm -hmm. that's been wrapped up in a novel. Interesting. And I'm very, I'm interested in books with big philosophical themes. I just don't think she succeeded. Mm. She's got two premises that she runs throughout the book. One, that the highest form of intimacy is game playing. And secondly, that life itself is fundamentally repetitive and redemptive, like the extra lives you get in a video game. Right. These are interesting premises, but she doesn't actually succeed in making me believe them anymore for having read this novel. The first one, that the highest form of intimacy is game playing, I find that preposterous on its face. And, Agree. and there's just so much in life that runs counter to that. I'll, I'll give one example. My family likes to play board games when we get together. We also, at times, sit around and, and chat and converse. Guess when we're connecting more? When we're conversing. When we're conversing. <laughs> so my own lived, lived experience does not support her premise. And she's done nothing in the book to change my mind about that. Yes, the two of them came together through game playing at the beginning of the novel, but that's not actually intimacy. It's just playing a game, to, you know, Super Mario Brothers, hopping around on those ladders or however that worked. Wait, or was they, that Donkey Kong? I they think they played both. They were in single digits, nine, 10, whatever. They, I mean, maybe there's a, a maturity issue or, or maybe if someone has um, a condition that keeps them from connecting with someone directly, mm-hmm. maybe the only way that they can connect is in a video game. But I don't find that to be generally true. And I think that the types of connections that you get with games are different than the types of conne- connections you get in a real relationship. Well, that's the point. I, I would think it would be great if she showed in the book that I'm wrong mm. through, the, through the characters. And I just don't think she does. They seem disconnected throughout and the game playing doesn't really address that. Or maybe she does. Maybe maybe she does show that they can't connect with each other. And so the only way they can connect is games. But- that's fine. That's a different premise. That's saying... Game playing is a form of intimacy, but her thesis that she says several times flat out is it's the highest form 
Now, her other premise that life is fundamentally repetitive and redemptive, yeah, I think that's there's some hope in that. But she's using video games as the primary metaphor for that. And of course, in video games, you get hundreds of extra lives. Every time you're killed, you just start over again, <laughs> and it doesn't cost you anything. That's not the way real life is. Real life, if you're lucky, and maybe if you're privileged, you get one or two second chances. If you have a very positive outlook, you might look at your failures as another chance to, to learn and grow. The video game metaphor is not strong. And the thing that made me notice this the, the most is the title of the book. The title of the book is taken from the famous Shakespeare quote at the end of Macbeth, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. So that passage is very bleak. Yes. It's about life being meaningless, and then it's over. Yeah. And to take the title of her book from a context that's not even close to her premise is very strained. I think that she's got some strong philosoph philosophical ideas in the book, but they don't, they're, they're not well grounded in the story that she tells. And so for this category of all the feels, like you, I was left feeling rather flat. I gave it a two. What did you end up giving it? I gave it a 1.5. So when you add all these scores together, it ends up, this one we pulled apart a little bit. My average score is 2.5 mm -hmm. for this book. Yours is 2, which gives it a 2.25 jointly. Got it. 2.25 stars. That ranks at ninth out of the 16 books we reviewed this year, right in the middle of the pack. Yeah. And guess what the average on social media is? 4.31, which places it eighth out oh. of our 16 books so so we're close also middle of the pack our opinion aligns with social media opinion for once for once yeah. <laughs> i don't know how that happened all right well thanks for joining us we'll see you in a few tomorrows for our next episode when we review the exchange by john grisham until then keep dreaming keep flying keep laughing keep crying and don't stop until you've read them all <laughs>